Welcome, everyone, to a new series. We're beginning a series today entitled Displaced, wherein we'll be looking at themes from the book of James. And this could not be more timely, so please join me in prayer, and then we'll begin together. Father, I'd like to thank you that as we gather in still different places around, we gather, though displaced, as people also drawn together by virtue of your life. My prayer is that you would teach us through the power of your spirit and shape us that we might be people of confidence, not fear. People of generosity, not greed. People of peace. People of hope. People of hospitality. To that end, we give you these moments with thanksgiving. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1978, a book came out entitled The Road Less Traveled. I was in college. I read the book. It was one of the most profound offerings in my life at that time to help me mature. And the very first sentence in the book was the best sentence. This is what it reads. Life is difficult. This is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth... We transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult because once it's accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. And the reason for that is because now instead of asking why is this happening to me when bad things happen, my acceptance of reality allows me to focus on finding the way through as a person of hope in the midst of whatever is on my journey rather than being exhausted and paralyzed by bitterness or anger or regret or fear. And so when I can accept that life is difficult... I lay the foundation for transformation in my own life. And this is very, very, not only very important, it is one of the most important truths that builds wisdom into our lives, accepting that life is difficult. This is also the essence of Viktor Frankl's classic book written in, uh, from a concentration camp entitled Man's Search for Meaning. Actually, he wrote it in his mind and then put it to paper after. But this is what he writes. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from someone, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, one that can never be taken, is the freedom to choose your attitude in any given set of circumstances, the freedom to choose one's own way. So we need to learn how to live well when life is hard. And thankfully, there's an entire book in the Bible devoted to living well in the midst of circumstances we'd never have chosen on our own, and that book is the book of James. So let me give you a little bit of context here before we get into the text today. The context is this. We begin in James chapter 1. James self-identifies. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. James is someone who self-identifies as having relinquished his rights. He calls himself a bondservant of God. That's important, as we'll see later. For today's purposes, I'd like to focus mostly on his audience, the 12 scattered tribes. Again, listen to what he says. I'm writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. This word suggests that the people to whom James writes are living outside the confines of Israel. He's writing to Jews. And the fact that the readers have been dispersed 
means they're forced to live away from their home country. And this helps explain a second major characteristic of the readers of the letters. They're not only Jewish and displaced, but then as we go on, we see that they are suffering under poverty and oppression. Wealthy landowners are taking advantage of them, James chapter 5. Rich people are hauling them into court, James chapter 2. And so one of the key purposes of James writing this book is to encourage suffering Christians who've had things taken away from them so that they can live well in the midst of difficulties. In other words, this entire letter is, in my opinion, profoundly timely because it's written to people who are exiled, forced to shed old norms, and facing all manner of trials as a result. Relational trial, financial trial, physical trial, spiritual trial, emotional trial, political trial. In other words, this is written to displaced people. Has anyone felt displaced lately? 2020 is nothing if not the year of displacement. Displaced by racism, sexism, by your age, by COVID, by your job, by your political affiliation, by the fact that maybe your vocation led you to to move across the country. And as a result of these various forms of displacement, many people have not only felt cut off and isolated, but have been cut off and isolated. And then as a result, people need to make their way in the world without the support systems that are normal in different times. No one to hug, no one to sit down over coffee with, no, no one to be with, we're displaced. Not every displacement is equal. I'll say that at the outset and it's very important. There are many forms of exile, some profoundly more painful and life-altering than others. But everyone in 2020 and now on into 2021 has been dealing with a sense of exile. Life is not normal. (laughs) And as a result, we find ourselves cut off from normal support systems. And we need to figure out how to live well when life is not normal. And my prayer is that as we begin to move now back into normal that we will take a moment here in the series of James and ask the question, what have I learned during this season? And it's vital that we learn how to live well when life isn't going the way we want because this is not the last trial we'll face, this pandemic. And so at the outset, as we look at the book of James, this is what we see today. James offers three foundational truths about trials that bring us hope. Number one, trials produce endurance, which will fuel our faith for the long haul. Number two, trials require wisdom, so they create in us a posture of dependency. And number three, trials recalibrate our lives so that we can find joy where others don't. So let's look at these three uh, three truths, beginning with the first one. Uh, Number one, trials produce endurance. Look at James chapter one, verse, uh, begin by reading in verse two. Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then skip down with me to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, let's just look at this theme here. Trials produce endurance. This is very, very important. I'm just going to make a very simple observation at the outset that frames this. We don't produce endurance. We don't, therefore, enjoy all the benefits derived from endurance unless endurance is present, but we don't produce endurance. 
We're told in the Bible to put on love, put on Christ, clothe yourself with kindness, clothe yourself with mercy, clothe yourself with compassion, do justice, love mercy, walk with God. We are never told to produce endurance. And the reason for that is endurance is a byproduct of other practices. In a book that is on my uh, shelf for the purpose of living in the mountains, entitled Training for the New Alpinism, Steve House, a mountaineer, says consistently that raising your heart rate into the aerobic zone, and now I'm quoting, this is literally what he says, when you raise your heart into the aerobic zone for over 30 minutes, watch this, quote, it, quote, produces endurance, unquote. And then he goes on, he says, you don't produce endurance by reading about endurance. You don't uh, produce endurance with, you know, short bursts of self-discipline. Endurance is only produced as you go again and again and again back to the well of raising your heart rate into the aerobic zone for more than 30 minutes. And then like magic, it happens. Endurance is a byproduct. It isn't available on demand. It needs to be created. And in your body... The stress of aerobic exercise multiplies aerobic enzymes and mitochondria and slow-twitch muscle fibers, and the result of that is endurance. You can go farther, faster, longer, because you did the work. And in your spirit, endurance is the capacity, watch this, very important, the capacity to keep on loving when you're not feeling loved by others, to keep on serving when those you're serving are complaining to keep on using the gifts that God has given you or when there are circumstances that make you want to quit. The circumstances could be opposition or conflict or cancer or uh, trouble on the home front. But what you do, verse uh, 12, is you persevere. And if you persevere, you're creating endurance, right? Your belief is that something good is happening in spite of the pain, in spite of the rejection, in spite of the weariness, in spite of the misunderstanding, in spite of the loss, you keep showing up, and as a result, endurance, the capacity <clears throat> to love when you don't want to love, endurance is being produced. And when you look at the Bible, you see this over and over and over again. Endurance is produced through trials. David is anointed as king in the Old Testament, and then the trials begin. And he has years of trials uh, when the existing king tries to kill him, and it's in the trials that endurance is produced. Jeremiah is faithful to his calling. He goes out, he begins a ministry of teaching and preaching prophetically to a nation uh, in, in ruins, essentially. And then the trials begin, the rejection, the mocking, the imprisonment. And in the trials, endurance is produced. Esther is faithful in the face of genocide, and endurance is produced. Job is faithful in the face of financial loss, health loss, the judgment of his family members, and endurance is produced. Endurance is needed in this age. It's a needed word in this age because we live in a time of incredible impatience. If things don't work immediately for us, we assume as evangelicals, quote, unquote, God's not in it. We got to get out of here. And if we face a hard time, rather than letting things ripen and see what comes, we want to fix it right now. And if we can't fix it now, we judge it. That's wrong. Our impatience will be tempered by endurance. This lust for instant resolution to everything. 
And, and because of the choices that are attended to many of us who live in privilege, our lack of endurance has created a consumer mentality that's bled into our relationship to our church, to our family members, to our city. Because watch this. If you don't like something, don't work through it. Don't have the hard conversation. Don't be patient. Don't, uh, don't turn the other cheek. Just leave. No, says James. Hebrews 10, also written to Jewish Christian suffering, Hebrews 10 says this, you have need of endurance. And I tell you, Christianity is littered with uh, the, 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 the souls and lives of people who are no longer walking with God. I'm not talking about just leaving institutional Christianity. I'm talking about people who have given up their faith And in conversation, I often trace it back to this, impatience. God didn't come through. And so, boom, I'm done. Uh, Interesting that I'm preaching on this topic this week. Because in the last couple of weeks, there have been kind of some macro questions that have really been bothering me. Regarding the health of our nation regarding, uh, you know, how we reopen here at Bethany Community Church here at Green Lake. Uh, Regarding resistance of science on the part of people of faith. And I just want to fix these things, and and they're they're unfixable. And then, uh, you know, health questions with my wife, who suffered uh, uh, a case of vertigo over Christmas Eve, and is just now coming, you know, back to the point of health. And, And questions... Even about, as, as trivial as it seems, questions about, you know, when will my, my puppy sleep through the night so that I can get a full night's sleep? And a few more questions also, too personal to share. And so, unresolved, 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 unresolved. All these things are unresolved. I want them resolved, and I want them resolved yesterday. And I lost a piece of equipment for my dog, and I had a meltdown. I just had a meltdown. It was the last straw. My life felt completely out of control. Is there nothing I can control? And here's the answer. No, there is nothing you can control, Richard. Because control is an illusion. Now, when I'm having a meltdown, watch this. Everything is still true. I'm still complete in Christ. I'm still filled with Christ. There are still countless gifts all around me. I'm well provided for. I love the mountains where I live. I love the city that I serve. But the weight of the trials pushed me to an edge two weeks ago. And the edge is a crossroads. Because at the edge, here's the question. We all face it. At the edge, in your marriage, in your vocation, in your church life, in your family life, when you're at the edge, here's the question. Will I learn to trust and persevere and practice gratitude? Or will I simmer in anger and hurl accusations and rant on social media and obsess over getting out of my trial and disengage with God and my situation and my people? This is not healthy. And so James is written to say, look, Trust, persevere, practice gratitude, find joy. You are being transformed in the trial. It's producing something in you beautiful. Remember this? Let endurance have its perfect result, which is what? You are complete, lacking in nothing. I need endurance to be complete, and I can't produce endurance. Well, then how is endurance produced? By my acceptance of the trial, and rather than disengaging, learning in the midst of the trial, which we'll get to in a minute, and it's the learning, the persevering that produces 
endurance, and it's the endurance that produces maturing and wholeness. So how do I choose wisely? Here's the text. Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials. Another translation, reckon this pure joy. It's an accounting term. It means that uh, you're looking at the books that are your life. And watch this. You're put, what, this is so incredible to me. You're putting the trial in the asset column, not the liability column. Let me just ask a question. Where are your trials? Asset, liability. Because if it's, if it's, if it's strictly the liability column, all that that I spoke of, the ranting, the bitterness, the accusation, the judgmentalism, the disengagement, it's all there. In other words, reckon it joy. Why? <laughs> because, not because it's fun, but because of what it produces, wholeness. Wholeness. So the first truth, trials produce endurance. That's a good thing. Therefore, reckon the trial to be, to be uh, a cause for for joy. Second, trials require wisdom. Uh, read with me verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he who asks must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So, um, in truth... We want to choose wisely, reckon it joy. Yes, 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 all good. But simply showing up day after day in the midst of your trial and persevering just by gritting your teeth and kind of pressing through, that's not going to work. Rather, the trial is intended to expose in you your own deficiencies, those areas in your life whereby you've been living autonomously. And, and then uh, when you see it and own it, with empty hands, you, you ask God for the resources for that moment. That's what this means. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In other words, trials reveal, they really do, they reveal the frailty of our humanity. They reveal our lack of resources for coping and knowing that lack, knowing that we can't cope, it's like an, uh, a 12-step principle, right? I need a higher power. My life is out of control. Knowing that we can't cope uh, is vital for our health because we're made to live in a state of existential dependency on Christ. Christ is the source of joy and peace and love and patience and, of course, wisdom. So trials kind of deconstruct the kind of the false house of cards that we've built, a faith of platitudes, a faith of, of uh, uh, you know, legalistic practices, uh, and instead kind of reveal those vasters in our lives where we are not yet receiving from God what God has freely given us, but we're not appropriating and using the, the life that we have in Christ. And we don't even know it until trials reveal the problem. 
The hardest year of my life was 1975. I say that whenever anybody asks. It just was. My dad died October 1973. 1974 was not a great year, but it was okay. Uh, but 1975, I had stayed home from going away to university in order to spend time uh, with my mom and help her through grief. And so my mom is dealing even more, I think even more than I am, with a tremendous sense of loss and a tremendous sense of anxiety. And it's putting a deep, just a huge strain on our relationship. And, and now uh, my, my poor dear mother is the only caregiver and I think I was hard on her. And I think she was hard on me, if truth be told. And, and so she was suffering loss and anxiety. I was suffering loss and anxiety. In addition, I was suffering the anxiety of uncertainty. Would I get into architecture school? And if I didn't, what would I do? I was suffering social woes. I had one friend uh, who was too close. He stuck with me everywhere I went. He wanted to be there with me. And I had church friends who were too judgmental because I was deeply involved in the music culture in the city where I grew up. And so I wasn't as involved in church as I was in the music culture. And people were, were kind of accusing me of spiritual immaturity on, uh, as a result of this. And, and that caused a kind of a fracture and some, some relationships there. And all of this led to health woes and loneliness and a sense of being judged by everyone is not enough. So a t- just a terrible year. And... My, like, beautiful faith of 1973 has just been shattered. It's just been shattered. So that in 1976, fast forward, February 76, one sermon about knowing God changed my life. Jeremiah 9, don't let the rich man boast of his wisdom. If anyone will boast, boast in this one thing, boast that you know God. And then this guy points at me. Make knowing God the goal in your life. I knew that I needed to because nothing else was working. Social life, failure, family life, really hard. Vocational choices, uncertain. Health, diminishing. So out on the snow, God, prayer, God, I want to know you. I want to make that the goal. To this day, that's the North Star for me. Always calling me back. What's it all about? Intimacy. Walking humbly with God. Little did I know then that in seeking to know God, I was actually asking for wisdom. Because, you know, in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as the one who was with the Father in creation... Wisdom delights in humans. Wisdom knows, our, wisdom knows our riches. Wisdom knows our potential. And, and so in, in Proverbs 8, there's, this, there's just this really good word. Above everything else you seek, we're told. Above everything else you, you seek, seek wisdom. Does our wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gates at the opening of the city. And when people are coming to the city, she calls out, listen, fools, understand wisdom. Come to me. My mouth will utter truth. Wisdom is better than jewels. Yeah. What do you need? When, when uh, your f- faith has been deconstructed, when your world has been shattered, when the, the, the oncology report is positive, 
when the job is taking you across the country, when your spouse has been unfaithful, what do you need? Wisdom. So that you can persevere, so that you can have endurance created in you, so that, <clears throat> excuse me, so that you can mature and be whole. Seek wisdom. I don't do this all the time, but off and on, I make a habit out of reading wisdom literature as part of my uh, devotions in the morning. Right now, it is a part of my habit in the moment. And at times, I've read through the Proverbs. There's like 31 chapters in Proverbs, and I've read one a day. So good to be grounded in wisdom that is really kind of the heart of Christ and the heart of God the Father. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God. God will give it to you. How? Well, God's spoken a great deal of it here. And between the text and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life and other people speaking in your life, God has wisdom available. We, we need wisdom in this age to know when to speak and when to be silent, to know when to confront and when to comfort, to know uh, when to... to uh, give and when to withhold. We need wisdom. So uh, trials, if we're going to get through them with a, a, a manner that will produce endurance, trials require wisdom. I encourage you to make a habit of seeking wisdom. And if you haven't done this ever, I encourage you to take two or three months and read one chapter of the Proverbs every day. It's transformative. And then finally this, trials recalibrate our perspective. Let me just read for you verse uh, 13 through 18. Uh, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God can't be tempted by evil. And God himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good thing, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought forth us by the word of truth, so that we would be a first fruit among all of his creatures. Now, let me just unpack a little bit of this for you. Trials, we're already told, trials will recalibrate our perspective. They will. They'll recalibrate our perspective, in particular, regarding God's character, one way or the other. And we've just been through uh, this series entitled Formed in the Wilderness when we looked at the book of Exodus. And what you see in the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, with Israel's wanderings, out from Egypt with their intended goal of the promised land, you see over and over again the people responded to trials by judging God, presuming God's evil intent. God brought us out into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. God brought us out into the wilderness to kill us with thirst. God brought us out into the wilderness only to lead us into the land where there's giants. He's going to kill us in there. In other words, there was a central criticism on the part of those people in the wilderness because fundamentally, watch this, when they came up against 
any kind of threat, their presumption was this, God is not good. God brought us out here to kill us. And watch this, if I don't believe God is good, I can't trust God. And if I can't trust God, my own survival mechanisms require that I either live a guarded life or that I lose my faith in the existence of God at all. And either way, I'm on my own. I'm fighting my own battles, always wondering what's around the corner, always consumed with bitterness or, or, or grief, you know, always, always living in fear, which is a major characteristic of American culture. And if I'm Jewish <clears throat> at the time of the writing of the letter of James and following Christ, it would be ridiculously easy to fall into one of these negative patterns. Because the ethnic story of the recipients of this letter would be this. Hey, we've suffered civil war, then the Assyrian captivity, then the Babylonian captivity, and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and then the Medes and the Persians, who were displaced by the Greeks, who were displaced by the Romans. And throughout this whole time, these people are displaced and displaced and displaced. And the ugly pattern of anti-Semitic displacement and genocide Continued the whole time, 800 years, people to try to wipe out the Jewish population. God's chosen people, remember Tavia and Fiddler on the Roof? As they're, as they're being displaced again from Russia, he kind of looks up at the sky, he says, could you choose someone else for once? I mean, enough with the displacement, enough with the loss, enough with the suffering. Is God good? Well, James goes to great lengths to address this because if God isn't good, then I can never choose this redemptive path when I face trials. I just can't. So look at what he says. He says, don't be deceived. Every good thing given... Every good thing given and every perfect gift, it's all from above. Coming from God, the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow, God is good. In the exercise of God's will, God brought us forth. We exist. God is good. There's clean water. God is good. You're breathing still. God is good. Moments of intimacy. God is good. Cake. God is good. Coffee. God is good. Seasons changing. God is good. A vaccine, because humans made in the image of God use their intellect to create something that can protect life. God is good. This is the foundation to choosing this redemptive path when you face trials. This is the foundation. Is God good? Man, I've, you know, I've heard people say, I'm going to the doctor. I've got this test, this oncology test. And if it comes back positive, that's it. I'm done with God. As if God exists to grant us somehow immunity from suffering and trials. Hello? That was never the point, ever. We live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, there's, there's, a, there's a time to be sick and a time to be healed. There's a time for war and a time for peace. There's a time for, for tears and a time for laughter. There's a time for confrontation and a time for hugging. There's a time for intimacy and a time for loneliness. 
There's a, there's, a, there's a time when the market is up and a time when the market crashes. There's a time of feasting and a time of famine. Hello, it's all there. God didn't promise you half the equation. God promised you God's presence through every valley, every hill, every peak, every blessing, every curse. I will be with you. That's good news, man. Literally, gospel. God with you in whatever you face. God is good. And in the midst of our trials, what is so important, in the midst of our trials, there are always, always gifts. In spite of everything, I still believe God is good. (laughs) Why? The gifts are everywhere. That's why. Every sunrise, every cold mountain stream, every moment of intimacy, every, every act of courage, Children, water, a run, beauty, vulnerability, movement towards justice. Bonhoeffer saw gifts in the midst of all that was going on in Germany. Buendi, my friend who's a pastor in Rwanda, saw gifts in the midst of all that was going on in the genocide. My experience in Nepal, pastors suffering severe persecution, the building, the, their church building burned down five times, pastor put in jail. He still sees the gifts of God. My friends who have walked through the oncology ward, seeing the gifts of God. My experiences at various memorial services where people have suffered horrible loss of life, still see the gifts of God. And in all these instances, nothing is sugar-coated. There's suffering, there's injustice, there's loss, there's illness, there's oppression, there's betrayal. It's all dark, but watch. In that, there's still gratitude as well. Wow. There's this capacity in us that streams from the recognition that God isn't the author of evil, but God has promised to walk with us through the evil and that God's presence along the way ends up being the greatest gift of all. Yes, uh, the clean water intended to point me toward the giver of the gift. The beautiful music pointing me to God. The intimacy pointing me to God. The sunrise pointing me to God. But God is the, is the, is the giver of every gift in order that we might, his kindness might lead us to repentance. That we might turn from this kind of destructive path over here of disengagement and cynicism and judgmentalism toward persevering in trials, continuing to serve, continuing to love, continuing to hope, continuing to give. Why? Because God is good. And so we're waiting waiting, waiting, waiting to be led through the valley, knowing that on the far side of the valley, we will come out different, better, (laughs) because we followed. Will you wait with me? As COVID ends, as the next shooting happens, as our own house of cards and faith is deconstructed, we wait because when we wait, when we wait and persevere, endurance is produced. And endurance is maturing us so that we can live as people of hope in an even greater measure in 2021 than 2020. May that be our story. Please pray with me. Father, thank you 
that James took the time to write a letter to displaced people because we are displaced. And I would just ask now as we close uh, that every one of us would just take a moment and name our displacement. And then we wait. In our anxiety, give us peace. In our weakness, give us strength. In our bitterness, give us grace. Thank you. Amen. Amen.